This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. going on guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda we got danny abdel jabbar yo yo live in new york city <laughs> what's going on man we're not actually live um <laughs> we record about two days prior to the release of the episode got to get that podcast all neat and stuff mm-hmm. um however because we record two days prior it's not it's not filmed in front of a studio audience uh, FYI, I'm really looking forward to some laugh tracks though in the future, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like a '90s sitcom or some shit. Oh, like that. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> we do need to get it. <laughs> yeah. <Ooh. laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah. Every time like a guest enters, it's just like a loud like applause and shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get that like that Kramer look when Kramer <laughs> pops into the door and everyone starts like laughing. <laughs> then we have to also get like some like light motifs like like every now and again. <laughs> and then we got to get a dramatic like a uh, a character growing moment sound yeah. mm-hmm. like do do do. Yeah, yeah. Well, because we we are we record in the past, uh, we're usually like two days away from the current events that we speak about, so. We are, we're always subject to be given more information yep. in the future, if that makes any sense. So if anything changes between now and then, we will let you know in a week. <laughs> we will let you know in the week in our corrections. Yeah. <laughs> in our corrections podcast. <laughs> Who are we kidding? We don't issue corrections. Yeah, sometimes we do, actually. No, we, we, we do. do. We, 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 we issue a fair amount of corrections. Let me correct myself right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's I, <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a correction right there. So, um, we're talking about a topic that we've been exploring over the past couple of weeks, and we haven't really talked about it at all um, since the beginning of the show started. New topic. New new topic, but it definitely fits in the theme about uh, of things that we, we frequently talk about, and that's sectarian violence between just different religions, whether that be... Uh, Sunni, Shiite, uh, Jews, and Muslims... Um, I know it's a little repetitive, um, Protestant and Catholics. However, we've never talked about what's actually going on in India right now, and specifically mm-hmm. Kashmir. And in my opinion, you know, just looking further into this, this is possibly the most dangerous uh, situation in the entire world. For I don't sure. know. I don't know if you would agree with that statement. Totally. But I don't know <laughs> yeah. if there's a, if there is a more hostile kind of Mexican standoff that's going on right now because India and Pakistan are the two countries that we're talking about. Both of them are nuclear. They, they both have nuclear arms. And yeah. I'll, I'll make an addition to that. They were, they're actually sitting at the crux of three nuclear powers. And that's includes obviously India and, and Pakistan, but also China. China's in there 
too. And and I think as this conflict in Kashmir heats up, you know, we're going to see some pretty interesting things come out of it. Like the, And what I wanted to talk about today is just kind of the historical context um, that follows up to this, because I think it follows, like you said, a lot of the paths that we talk about uh, on this show. You know, sectarian violence is definitely a part of it, a big part of it, but also a lot about that this post-colonial formula and like how its geopolitical implications today, you know, just become very, very immense. And I think, I hope to say, you know, to, to draw some comparisons to some topics that we've talked about in the past, but like talk about this brand new topic, uh, which is specifically Kashmir. And no, not the Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> no. <laughs> so well, before we like jump into the history of it, the reason why I find it so dangerous, obviously they're both nuclear, like India, Pakistan, China. I mean, India and Pakistan are the main culprits that you would think are going to start bombing each other. Uh, however, you know, the issue that I, something that I found and, you know, don't take this, take this with a little bit with a grain of salt because I've never verified this, but this is just kind of stuff that I've read over time and I've heard around the block is that. The situation right now between India and Pakistan, so India, they have more strategic nukes, and in Pakistan, they ha- they're they armed with more tactical nukes, and right. the difference is, is that strategic nukes are, are more so used to just kind of wipe out a civilization. You know, mm-hmm. those, are, those are the nukes that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They're, they're, they're politically strategic weapons. On the other hand, you have Pakistan, and they're armed with tactical nuclear weapons, and those are really used for battlefield use. So, you know, whatever whatever is, I know it's kind of, uh, can be confusing because it's st- strategic on the battlefield. Um, however, they're called tactical nukes. And as far as I know, um, so India, the, the Indian army is much larger than the Pakistani army. That's right. India, mm-hmm. is, India is a much larger country. Um, they're much better funded. Their economy's better. There's a whole lot of things that are better. Yeah. The Indian army is bigger. And if Pakistan result, uh, resorted, let's just say if India invaded Pakistan and um, Pakistan resorted to tacti- using tactical nuclear weapons, that could be a pretext for India to start just kind of obliterating Pakistan. Because what I've heard, uh, what makes it unique is that the, the military officers in the Pakistani army, um, they actually have free range to use those, those tactical nukes. Right, they so, don't have a nuclear football like we do. Yeah, they don't have a nuclear football. So they could use that, and then the pretext would be very well set that India can come and just kind of obliterate, you know. Yeah, but I, I don't want you to, to forget about China here, though, because China is in this mix as well, and they are also nuclear-armed, and as of late, they've been pretty well aligned with Pakistan. So, like, that makes things a little bit less one-sided when we talk about, like, conflicts and, and, and warring because, you know, maybe Pakistan-India one-to-one, yeah, I could see India totally wrecking Pakistan with massive loss of life on both sides. But you include China in the mix, and they become kind of a playing field leveler. Like, I don't think that they have as big a stake in the India-Pakistan um, conflict as, you know, um, as China, you know, China doesn't have that big a stake. But they do have a stake, and I don't think that they would completely act, you know, like neutral there, and they haven't in the past. So I think uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the future, but I th- don't don't sleep on China. We'll talk about China in a bit. And just add a little bit more confusion to the situation, Russia backs India mm-hmm. to, to a very high degree. That's right. And then the U.S. is definitely in there somewhere. just depends on, like, you know, 
when and who we're talking about. I think right now we're probably closer to the uh, to the um, India side than we are on Pakistan, but we have interests in both sides. So, yeah, the U.S. it changes from time to time, but right now the U.S. is definitely on the side of India more so than than Pakistan. Yeah. So what's what's interesting is that Russia Russia has been backing India for a very long time, and that's funny because it it's like that that weird game of oh, well, Russia and the U.S. are on the same side. Mm-hmm. No, they're not on the same side. They're just countries. They, they back countries for specific reasons. Right. Sometimes they align themselves with other countries that normally they don't, but it, it really has to do with their strategic interest in, in that area. That's correct. Um, so it doesn't there, – there's not some, like, kind of uniform alliance system where whatever, whatever country that the U.S. backs, the – Russians will automatically oppose or vice versa. Um, it really just has to do with kind of the relationship between those two parties, not necessarily this kind of like, you know, this century long or half a century long alliance system that's been together since the Cold War. Right. But why don't we, instead of talking about the contemporary situation, why don't we peel this back? Yep, definitely. Uh, Danny, you've been doing the majority of the research on the history, so I want you to dive right in and kind of start start going over the the, the history of this conflict. For sure. And and one thing that I want to point out before I get started on that history is that it's really important to note that there's a lot of context here and there's no way that I'm going to get through everything. And I had to pick a spot to start. Uh, and I'm more than certain that our listeners and our viewers are going to you know tell me how I should have started 100 years prior. Uh, that's cool if we were doing a Dan Carlin style episode, but we're not. So I'm going to skip over a bunch of stuff that I think is not as important for the context that we want to give and for the narrative that we want to, you know, uh, point out. Uh, but I'm happy to hear your thoughts on, you know, what other things we should explore, because honestly, doing this research has brought me into a whole new, you know, uh, uh, kind of realm of content that I really want to start exploring and maybe talking a little bit more about on the show. So here's where I decided to start. I wanted to start in 1857, uh, and this is during British colonization of the region. So in 1857, there was an Indian rebellion. Um, it, it was a it was a major but obviously unsuccessful unri- uprising that happened in India, uh, and it was against British Indi- uh, the British East India Company, which, you know, I, I, I don't really have time to t- explain the British East India Company, but we need to know is that they were basically a acting as a sovereign power on behalf of the British crown. Um, but like I said, we don't have time to, to really talk about that. There was a rebellion in India against them. It got quelled. And uh, basically what happened was it ended the Mughal Empire. And the Mughal Empire actually lasted for something like 200 years before it. Uh, at its largest point, uh, it was probably one of the biggest empires in the history of South Asia. Um, they built the Taj Mahal, by the way. So the, the, the Mughals, that's that's what they did, one of the things that they're famous for. Um, but we don't have time to talk about the Mughal Empire either. Uh, today, we're actually going to talk a little bit about the formation of British India, um, because like many topics we cover, uh, when the British get involved in colonization, some crazy shit happens for the next several decades. Uh, and that's kind of the vein that I want to you know pursue and travel along. Uh, so uh, basically, the system of governance um, that was uh, uh, British India uh, was started around the uh, June 1858, uh, and that was just right after the Indian Re- Rebellion of 1857. Um, and basically, the British East India Company transferred their power uh, over India to um, Queen Victoria, uh, who 
was then named Empress of India. And that uh, reign basically lasted from 58, 1858 to 1947. So it was quite a long time. Um, and the, 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 it was called contemporarily um, the British Raj or the British rule. And it was organized kind of interestingly uh, into hundreds of small little sections, right? Uh, kind of like states, if you will. Uh, some were under direct um, British control, um, and some of them were what were called like princely states that were ruled kind of quasi-independently, but definitely under the overall control of a British viceroy and the governor general. And I don't know, the, the titles get super weird here. The British had no like um, no lack of chains of command and, and strange honorariums um but anyway uh so kashmir the the region that we're that we're going to be talking mostly about uh it was formerly known as jammu and kashmir uh and uh, the makeup of, of jammu and kashmir was mostly muslim majority right and this is kind of important when we're talking about sectarian violence um but uh interestingly enough it was ruled by a hindu maharaja and maharaja literally translates to great king but it's kind of like a princeship or a governor uh, of that indian state um, and that's kind of how, you know, this whole story gets started, basically. What was the benefit of Britain colonizing India? You know, we all know throughout history that Britain did colonize India, but no one really knows the reason why. So why did they do it? Why did they find that as an important asset? Like, if you look throughout history, Britain has always been hypersensitive about any other power that's come even close to India. Um, I, it, like, just take the Great Game, for example. Like, their mm -hmm. entire, all of their politics in the eastern part of the world were all shaped around protecting India. All their all their policy against Russia, um, trying to keep them out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. that, that was the main stem of the Afghan-Anglo wars in the, in the 19th century, is that they were trying to keep Russia out of India's like sphere of you know radius. Right. So why was this so important to India? Uh, why why was India so important to Britain? Yeah, well, I think it kind of just boils down to a, a few really basic things. So the M the British Empire got rich off British India. Like let's be just real. It, a lot of it was totally economic. Um, most notably, uh, the production and export of tea and coffee. Like those were huge during the time. I mean. It, arguably it's still huge now you know like british people love a, a good spot of tea um but uh, also uh textiles things like cotton uh and of course literally every libertarian's favorite taxes india has a giant population and they were able to tax the hell out of them and that totally enriched the british empire and arguably it's probably one of the bigger reasons why why they were so successful as an empire i mean during the time they said that the the sun never sets on the british empire and they made a lot of money on on Indians, frankly. And obviously that didn't go over so well uh, with the, the people in India. And, you know, around the time, uh, and there was a, a more than enough anti-British movements, you know, and, and most of them got spanked, you know, by the end of the 19th century, though, uh, what we start seeing is these Indian nationalist movements start to pick up steam uh, by that, like, excuse me, by the beginning of the 20th century is when they start picking up a little bit more steam than they did. Obviously, we started in 1857, the end of the 19th century, with a big Indian Revolution, uh, rebellion, I should say, and it didn't go anywhere. But, you know, turn of the century, we start seeing some some changes happening. Um, but, of course, things get a little complicated, and the first big complication in the beginning of the 20th century is, of course, World War One. And I'm sure you must already know how complicated World War One 
can get. Yeah, so in World War One, there was many Indian soldiers that served That's on right. the side of the Allies. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they served the subject of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of the soldiers that served, not only on the Western Front, but a lot of soldiers that served specifically in the Middle East were That's right. actually Indian soldiers. So That's right. Yeah, there was many Indians that served in the Middle East during World War One, and um, they were used in a variety of different roles. But during the war, a lot, most of their soldiers were sent up in, onto the Western Front. I mean, that was where these huge epic battles were taking place, where you'd have twenty thousand to one hundred thousand casualties. Um, I mean, Gallipoli was, of course, down in the Middle East. But uh, besides Gallipoli, you know, the, the majority of the war. Um, or at least the really big battles of when you think of World War One, were in the Western Front. They were primarily in France and Belgium. Now, um, Indian troops they served as as uh, you know as a buffer, cannon uh, fodder, can, cannon fodder. <laughs> that's seriously that that's what they were. But you they know, had a pivotal role. They had a very absolutely. pivotal role. No, absolutely. And and in all, 1.5 million Indians got drafted for World War One, and they fought bravely. You know, despite being you know subjected to the meat grinders that was World War One, and while I would really love to talk like more about their contributions to that war, we obviously don't have time for that. Um, what what I think you need to know about this is that when they got back home, their living conditions stayed bad, and this kind of increased the nationalist movements and protests in India against colonial rule. In particular, there was one really crazy incident where the British killed hundreds of Indian civilians to put down uh, those movements. And it was the—I'm going to butcher this. I'm sorry, any Indians that are listening to this, please bear with me. Uh, Jallianwala Bagh Massacre is what it was called, or the Amritsar Massacre. Uh, This happened 13th of April uh, 1919. Uh, and this dude, Reginald Dyer, he was in, uh, a brigadier general, one of those Reg- interesting— Sir Reginald Dyer! Sir Reginald! Well, what Re- <laughs> what Reginald decided to do was fire a bunch of rifles into a crowd of unarmed, like, civilians in, in the oh, province— Oh, Reginald! Of- <laughs> Reginald. Uh, it, and the, the province was J- Jallianwala Bagh, or Amritsar, and it was in Punjab. Uh, and it killed. They killed 400 people, including 41 children, uh, and I think there was some reports of like a six-week-old child that died, um, and more than a thousand were injured. Uh, and I can talk on and on about this ridiculous massacre, but we don't have time for that. Um, just kind of giving you a, a little bit of insight onto the, you know, kind of how the political and the you know atrocities that were happening in India were really bubbling up this nationalist movement in India against the crown. Um, and around that time, uh, our, our good friend Mahatma Gandhi comes into prominence uh, in the resistance with kind of like a peaceful twist. Uh, you know, he called for civil disobedience uh, and specifically boycotting uh, British products. Um, so under uh, Mahatma Gandhi, the, uh, what, what was called then the, in- actually I think they're still around, the Indian National Congress, which was the biggest anti-British political party at the time, and, and I think still might be around. I gotta double check on that. Um, but he became like the principal leader there. Uh, there was also uh, uh, one of their big uh, leaders was Nehru. But again, we don't have time to talk about every single figure. And Mahatma Gandhi is much more well known, so we'll talk about him in a minute for a bit. Uh, but their their whole platform was interesting, and I, I hope to draw some comparisons here. So the the Congress was a secular party. 
Um, so not not sectarian. Uh, they were you know mostly secular, and they identified as social democratic, uh, and it was pretty much like center left in Indian politics. So from Wikipedia, and I'm going to read this directly because I think it's interesting. Uh, the Indian National Congress is. You're using so- a Wikipedia source on I, this. I just think when I read this, I was just like, I have to read this out loud because it's hilarious uh, and it has some context today. So uh, the the social policy is. Where based- does the source come from? <laughs> Where? You gotta you gotta chill with with unmuting, dude. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, so so mute yourself so I can <laughs> so I can speak here. Um, okay, so. Uh, the social policy is based on the Gandhian principle of sarvadaya, sarvodaya, uh, which means the lifting up of all sections of society, which involves the improvement of the lives of the economically underprivileged and socially marginalized people. The party primarily endorses social democracy, seeking to balance individual liberty and social justice, welfare, and secularism. Its constitution states democratic socialism to be its ideal. What does that sound like to you, Henry? <laughs> it sounds like somebody who would be very happy back then. <laughs> yeah, Bernie Sanders would have won I, the national, pro- the uh, Indian National Congress primary. <laughs> it's the, the corporations. All right, yeah, it sounds a lot like uh, modern day. It just sounds like like kind of this leftist policy. Yeah, well, I don't know. I found it interesting uh, when I was reading about it. It literally sounds like, like pick a Democrat that's their like that's their <laughs> their platform right now. Um, but because I know that a lot of um, folks are going to give me shit about Gandhi and whether or not he was you know all fucking flowers and shit, uh, we're not going to even talk about Gandhi and his policies. I just wanted to like bring him up momentarily. But here's the important bit: uh, the Indian National Congress uh, called for a creation of an independent, secular Indian state. Um, but the country's Indian population was weary uh, of a – excuse me, the, the country's Muslim population was weary of a Hindu-dominated state because while they were calling for a secular state, de facto the largest um, uh, religion that, ha- that was in place there was Hinduism. Um, and so the Muslim minority and their political party, the Muslim League – uh, called for the creation of an independent Muslim state. So now we've got competing ideas about what should happen in India post crown. And that happens with some, you know, with some lively debate and some conversations. And then World War II. <laughs> of course, that throws a bit of a wrench into into it. Uh, and much like World War I, uh, two and a half million Indians get sent to war uh, all over the world, you know. Uh, they fought just as bravely and valiantly as as in the First World War, um, and just kind of like I feel like it, we're doing World War II a shame just by breezing through it so quickly. But we literally don't have time to get into the specifics. Key bullet points you want to know here: the British, you know, ruled India, and they had their hands full fighting Nazis in in Europe. But if you know your geography, the the Indians are super close to the Japanese. And so the Japanese start messing around in the Southeast Asian countries and obviously entering into that sector. And, and as you pointed out, Henry, Britain was super like protective over their, you know, a British Indian colony. Right. And so what ends up happening is that the Indian National Congress gets like fed up with obviously Britain for the reasons that we described before, but also just like, hey, we're always fighting your goddamn wars and like we don't want this shit anymore. So the Indian National Congress says, 
let's stop helping the British. Let's stop going to war for them. Uh, and they actually end up locking up thousands of civilians, um, uh, British civilians. Um, but uh, the Muslims, on the other hand, uh, the Muslim League keeps helping the British, probably because they want to stay in their good favor after the war because they're thinking, hey, you know, like if we do this thing and like, you know, a couple people die, that sucks. But like maybe after the war, they'll know who, who had their back and then we'll get some favorability there. Then Japan comes out of nowhere. Oh, you want to say something there? <laughs> yeah, so uh, just just some additional context. Right after Pearl Harbor happened, uh, Japan kind of went on, like, one of their big offensives. They, con- they conquered uh, Malaya. Malaysia. Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Not Malaysia, Malaya is part, not not the island of Malaysia. Like, they, they actually attacked, like, in, uh, the Mela Peninsula. Mm, okay. Um <clears throat> Well, I mean, they, they were wrecking a lot of that area of Southeast Asia. Like, they were island hopping and they were crushing everyone in the area. And actually, Japan t- took over uh, a few of the neighboring countries, which put the British and India in a pinch because it resulted in cutting off some supply lines for specifically rice from uh, Southeast Asia to India. And it caused a major famine in India um, for that reason. So to get India on board with the war, the British decided to make some promises, right? So this might be, you know, uh, uh, some familiar scenes here, right? Uh, so the British start saying, hey, we'll talk independence after the war. Just, like, help us get through this because, like, we obviously need you guys. And that's that's when we start talking about, after the war was over, we can start talking about the creation of these, you know, brand new Southeast Asian countries. And, Henry, what, I mean, what does that sound like to you? I mean, we've done many episodes about the British people promising some shit during war what does it sound like to you it, it sounds a lot like sykes pico um so we did an episode like three weeks ago and uh essentially sykes pico was an agreement that the british and the french made to divide up the middle east um that was secret meanwhile they were promising um these arab countries or if they weren't countries at the time these arab territories of the Ottoman Empire that they were going to be granted independence if they served and if they re- rebelled against the the Ottoman Empire. Right. What ends up happening is that they they go back on their promise and they end up um, conceding with the French um, in the territory because they overpromised the land. Meanwhile, the Arabs, they thought they were actually going to get they thought they were actually going to get their own independent state to to be to rule with autonomy but that, that didn't happen. They ended up getting screwed. And it was because the British were over-promising them during the war. And it's what the British did because, they, I mean, it's what any country does, is that when you're in a, when you're in a brutal war like that and you have to, um, you know, all of your expenditures are going out to fight your, you know, your primary, uh, on your primary war fronts, you're going to over-promise indigenous populations to try to get ahead on these other battlefields that you may not feel as important. Or uh, you could just say that it's just completely uh, colonial. Uh, I mean, it's certainly in, in World War I, Britain's primary motives were, or you could argue and say these primary motives were definitely colonial. Um, they wanted to carve out pieces of the Ottoman Empire that they believed contained high amounts of oil. Mm-hmm. And um, they had already found oil in Iran, um, in 19, you know, about five, six years prior to the war. So it made perfect sense. 
However, there's just a it's just a comparison because a lot of these countries that are that are that were created in the I guess post colonial or post World War One or post World War Two age are artificial states from these really big empires, That's right. such as the British <clears throat> Empire and the French Empire and even mm-hmm. the German Empire, because they weren't states prior to that. There was just there were different borders. Yeah, like the nationality, like that the. the the, the, the culture, racial groups, yeah. the culture was mm-hmm. still there, but mm-hmm. they, you know, they weren't nation states. They were part of these grand empires. Correct. And you have to understand that most of the world prior to these wars in the 20th century were controlled by these really big colonial powers. Mm-hmm. Just look at Africa. Most of Africa, 95% of Africa at the point, uh, at the height of, of, uh, of uh, colonialism, like the scramble of Africa, the height of scramble it went in about a 30 year period 5% of the country to about 90 to 95% of the country uh, w- was controlled by colonial powers from Europe right so these these states that were created they weren't created uh, organically they were created through artificial means right through artificial th- means through colonialism and frankly through war right yes uh, and, that and, is exactly and, right. And, and this is kind of the, the comparison that I wanted to draw, you know, between Sykes-Picot and, and this because, you know, now we're in 1947, the end of, uh, you know, World War Two, And now they got to come to the table, right? Brit- it, Britain has to you know, placate their, their uh, you know, on their demands here. And, of course, they, they fuck up um, immensely, uh, or at least a lot of people feel like they fucked up. Um, now, what they ended up settling on was – you know, they they were very conscious of the divide between the the two major parties, right? So the the part the Indian National Congress, you know, the the mostly Hindu but uh, wanting a secular state, and the Muslim League, which is mostly Muslim and a you know a, a Muslim state uh, that wanted an independent Muslim uh, uh, country, uh, and fearing like this another massive conflict, like right after World War II, they were like, all right, fuck it. We're going to go ahead and create two independent states. And the way that they did it is super interesting. Uh, so they it's what's called the partition. This happened on August 14th, 1947. Uh, and it basically established um, India uh, and Pakistan, although Pakistan changes a little bit uh, later on. We'll talk about that in a minute. So it was the Indian Union that was created. That was the official secular uh, but large Hindu majority. And then Pakistan, on the other hand, was the Muslim state, and it was separated into two distinct territories. It was West Pakistan, and that's what we know today to be Pakistan, and East Pakistan, uh, which will later become Bangladesh. Um, We'll talk more about that in a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Point though is that they've created, you know, two distinct states, but three territories. And inside of them, you know, people from different religions and different cultures lived everywhere, all over the entire region, the entire Indian subcontinent. So because of the tensions between, you know, uh, like a, a Hindu didn't want to live, you know, in, in Pakistan or, or in East or West Pakistan because it was going to be a Muslim-majority state, they had to flee away from Pakistan. And Muslims in in the Indian Union didn't want to live in a Hindu-dominated state, so they had to flee to Pakistan. And there was this mass transfer of, of peoples. Overall, one to two million people died in the conflicts after the creation of those two states because there was a lot of fighting. You know, immediately they set up borders and they're like, no, this is my land, this is my land, don't cross my shit. This, you know, it's, it was honestly, it was fucked up, but we don't have time to talk about how fucked up it was. Here's, here's though, a couple of key points. Um, not all the territories... Of, of the Indian subcontinent initially wanted to go one way or the other, like either Pakistan or, or India. The big one and the, and the topic of today's show was Kashmir and Jammu, or Jammu and Kashmir. And they got caught in between that partition. So under this plan, the partition plan, um, it, it, it was the, Indepe- the Indian Independence Act, by the way. Uh, Kashmir had the ability to pick which country they wanted to join. Here's where it gets a little interesting. So, as I mentioned before, the population of Kashmir is and was mostly Muslim. So, most Kashmiris at the time sided with Pakistan. However, the ruler of Kashmir, uh, the Maharaja Hari Singh, was Hindu, and he wanted to remain neutral. So, like, he wanted to be Switzerland. He's like, I don't want to pick a side, like, whatever, we want to be our own thing, right? The Muslim majority in Kashmir wasn't exactly happy about that decision, specifically because they had some ideas about the Maharaja, Hari Singh, because he was actually buddies with the prime minister of of the newly created Indian state, right? And he was also Hindu, so there was like this idea like, oh, he's not going to He's not going to do the right thing by us, and he's just going to go with India, and we don't want that, and stuff like that. Now, this is where it gets super weird, and I'm going to try not to take a stance here. Depending on where you're reading this, either a, a, a natural uprising happened in Kashmir to join Pakistan or to not let them go to India, meaning they can remain their own thing, or... Pakistani tribesmen that some people might label as terrorists infiltrated Kashmir to basically stir the pot up and get make a conflict so that Pakistan can come in and take Kashmir. Both options are probably true in some respect, and I'm not going to take a side on it because, frankly, I didn't do enough research to, to really dig into this, but this is what I was reading. Now, what ended up happening here is that... Once this happened, Hari Singh, the Maharaja, the, the prince or the governor, whatever you want to call him, he, he wasn't he, – obviously, he didn't like this too much, right? There was, there was like fighting in the streets and like crazy shit was happening. So in October 1947, Hari Singh actually 
turn to India for military assistance. So, you know, I wonder if it's like he was going to do it anyway or this exacerbated it. That's, that's kind of like the whole conversation, the whole debate. Um, but point, though, is what what actually happened is that he did go to India at that point and asked for help. And what he did was he signed Kashmir to India with a condition. And the condition was that there could be a referendum in Kashmir where the Kashmiri people could vote on Kashmir's future status. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. It never happened. Like that part never happened, still hasn't happened, probably won't happen anytime soon, unfortunately. So Pakistan turns around and he said they didn't actually recognize this as legal. They didn't think that that was the a legal transfer of power. And this triggered the first war between India and Pakistan. And it got super, super hot, like so hot that the UN had to jump in and they brokered the Karachi peace agreement. Um, and this agreement basically called for— Oh, yeah, the Karachi peace agreement. Like, we all know what that is. It was the peace agreement, the, the one that stopped the, the, the Karachi war. peace agreement. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so the, this is why you should know what the Karachi peace agreement is. Because the Karachi peace agreement created what is now known as the line of control, right? And this is what, what effectively split Kashmir in two. But it did not define hard borders, right? So it said this side on the left, on the west side, this is the Pakistan-controlled side. This side on the right, the east side, this is the Indian-controlled side. Also, there's some stuff, you know, later on that we'll talk about. But, like, that's basically what it did. They just drew a line right down the middle or diagonally across. And they said, here's here's what we're going to do with this. This is what the UN wanted. And somehow they got both parties to agree to it, to, to like stop fighting each other because it was ridiculous. Um, but one, but the borders were like super loose. And, and one border that was particularly very loose was the, the Siachen Glacier. It's literally a glacier. And it's a region in the area. Um, and the reason why it was super loose is because it was honestly very sparsely populated. And it still is till today. And it's extremely remote, so both countries end up claiming it, and they still claim it till today. I want you guys to remember the glacier for later, because it's important. But that's where we are, and that's where <laughs> the Karachi uh, uh, peace agreement is important. Wait, so you said glacier, so glacier. even like ice glacier. Literally a glacier, and that's important, so you should think about that. But yeah. Wait, in, in, in India? In yeah, it, well, you know, the, the northern part of India is the Himalayas. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, you're right. Giant mountain chains. Right? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Never mind. <laughs> Forget I said that. Forget I said that. <laughs> Topography for 100, uh, Alex. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely take a look at the map. Um, it's interesting. Glaciers are only in a North Pole. <laughs> no, there's the, it's it's the largest, actually, that, that glacier is the largest non-polar uh, glacier. Um, so it's, it's not in a pole, but it is a glacier, and it's important. So it basically split Kashmir into two. Speaking of glacier, thinking of things that are big, <laughs> I can't find. There's no better segue than all right. Let's this. let's all do right. it. Um, so, guys, uh, let's just take a quick moment to talk about sex. That's good sex. Now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up, BlueChew.com. That's blue, like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. So you know they work. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. Jesus. So you can get ready whenever that opportunity arises. 
Um, Bluechew.com has definitely improved my sex life a lot. Um, I cannot tell you how embarrassing it is and how deflating it is, no pun intended, <laughs> to <Deflating>. not <laughs> deflating, to not be able to get your your second brain up whenever that time arises. And please don't act like that's never happened to you because we all know it's happened to every single guy on the face of the planet. Um, if you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is a fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Most guys talk a good game, but Blue Chew helps you follow through. Blue Chew is prescribed online and strips straight to your door in a discreet package so it does not say boner pills in front of your apartment. Like what happened to me when I bought that package from Russia. So no ben- <laughs> uh, So. No in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. And believe me, uh, it's not fun telling your your doctor that you want, or anyone, that you really need to get uh, some help down there. Uh, They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Uh, Right now, we got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code BRO. That's B-R-O. Bro, just pay five dollars shipping. Again, that is b l u e chew.com promo code bro to try it free. Blue Chew is a better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks, Blue Chew. Thank you, Blue Chew. Thank you, Blue Chew. See, you get smarter and you get. Harder. <laughs> Smarter, harder. <laughs> uh, speaking of harder, bluechew.com. <laughs> Let's talk about sex. <laughs> Wait, I'm in a time loop. Um, all right. All right, we need to go back. All right. Um, all right, so to, to, to recap after all that, uh, Karashi Peace Agreement, they established the line of control, and that split... Kashmir into two distinct parts. So we had on the western side the Pakistan control part, and on the eastern side the Indian controlled part. But wait, didn't you say that China controls part of Kashmir too? Like what what is up with that? Because that is confusing. Yeah, it is kind of confusing. It's a good question. So the the short answer is yes, they do control part of Kashmir. And the long answer is way too long for me to go over today, but here's a quick synopsis because I think China's super, super important for later when we talk about like the geopolitical implications. So let's talk about the Cold War for a second. So during the Cold War, India actually opted for neutrality at first, right? They didn't want to choose a side. They didn't want to go with the the U.S. They didn't want to go with the uh, Soviets. And this was actually really good for um, trade and and, and different geopolitical relationships in in the Middle East and Asia and also in Africa. Um, But what happened, what had happened was um, after some visits from the USSR to India, China wasn't super happy with India at this point because China didn't like the USSR either. Later, China decides to go and do some shit with Tibet, right? So they go and annex Tibet. They just completely sweep it up. They say, nope, this is mine, and they take it. And the Dalai Lama, who's another person we don't have time to talk about, this dude flees from Tibet to India. And there's a whole mess and and a big-ass story around that that we also don't have time to cover, but the Dalai Lama fleeing to India definitely increases the tension between China and India, right? Um, 
And then China refuses to recognize a, a, um, a border that was established in 1914. The, the border is called the McMahon Line, um, which was the border between India and Tibet at the time. And since they took over Tibet, they're like, oh, that's, that's not real. We don't give a shit about that. And so in 62, 1962, China decides to attack India and they take over the parts directly south of that McMahon Line and a portion of the Indian-controlled side of Kashmir. And then China decides, hey, we're going to call a unilateral ceasefire. They pull out of the McMahon line region of India, but they, they still, to this day, don't legally recognize it. And But they decide to keep the small part of Kashmir that they took over, and that, was the, that part's called the Aksai Chin. Uh, and China has basically, from then on, formed a pretty good relationship with Pakistan because, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know? Um, and... Pakistan basically gives them another little piece of Kashmir that was on that was their controlled part on the border of of uh, China and um, and the Indian uh, excuse me the Pakistani controlled Kashmir uh, and this is important because they gave them like another little piece little land bridge there um, and then two more wars were fought between India and Pakistan since then so like once in sixty five and then in seventy one uh, and thousands of people were killed in smaller conflicts over the years. Uh, and, and China, basically, what's important about this is that they, they spanked India in, in that conflict that they had with India, where they acquired pieces of, of China. Uh, China. They, they absolutely spanked them. Um, and so Pakistan was emboldened by that. And they were like, hey, well, if you guys can do it, so can we. So they tried to start a Muslim revolution in Indian-controlled Pakistan. Excuse me, in Indian-controlled Kashmir. And this is one of the first... Uh, uh, of the this is the start of the first of the two wars, excuse me. This was the first of the two wars that were fought over that particular region, uh, and as that war intensified, Indian troops gained ground in Pakistan. Right, so they started pushing into the the West Pakistani border, and China didn't like that too much because they were getting kind of buddy buddy with Pakistan. So they 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 decided to get into the conflict. They threatened to. They're like, hey, we're gonna get in. And then again, the UN has to come in and like clean up the mess, right? So they're like, hey, everybody chill out. And they all just agreed to a ceasefire with the same Karachi line uh, of control, plus the little parts of um, Kashmir that, that uh, China had acquired through these conflicts. Uh, and then in 1970, uh, there was a separatist party election in the East Pakistan. Remember that part all the way in the east side that was like kind of islanded away from uh, West Pakistan? So there was a this party. They won uh, an election, and Pakistan didn't like it too much because they were like separatists, right? They they wanted to go and be their own thing. So Pakistan decides to use the military to crush those separatists, and millions of of, of people fled, especially uh, the minority Hindus that were in that particular region of Pakistan had to flee. Lots of people died. It was terrible. This caused India to sign, well, not caused, but I, I think it was definitely part of it. Uh, they ended up signing a, um, basically a, a, a pact, a military cooperation treaty with the Soviets and then decide to eat, uh, invade East Pakistan, right? So they go and they sweep into East Pakistan and they did so pretty easily, actually. Um, and then now because the Soviets are working with India, the U.S. had to get involved because we're talking about the Cold War here, Right. So the, the U.S. gets involved on behalf of Pakistan, and they ended up doing this thing where they brokered some kind of deal, and that deal created Bangladesh, as, as we know today. 
Uh, and obviously, since Bangladesh is its own thing and not a part of Pakistan, Pakistan loses out, right? They they lose that part of their country or, or of, you know, their, their claim to that territory. So ended up being not so good for Pakistan. Uh, now, skipping a bunch of stuff uh, that's probably important, but not necessarily for this particular conversation, uh, India decides to conduct some nuclear tests, and that totally shocked the world, right? Because they weren't supposed to be doing that in the first place. Um, and they get the bomb. And then later, like not too long after, Pakistan does the same thing and they get the bomb, right? We're talking about nuclear bomb, right? And then China at some point uh, during this whole thing also gets a nuclear bomb. Now we got three nuclear-powered countries that all have a piece of this Kashmir issue. And they're totally fine with fighting each other because they've proven it before. So today, India and Pakistan both claim total ownership of Kashmir. India controls 45%, Pakistan controls 35%, and China controls that that like northeast 20%. And that's where we are today. It's a complicated situation. Yep. It's one of the it's definitely one of the more com- I think that's one of the reasons why people avoid talking about the subject, yeah, not dude, necessarily crazy. because it's taboo, it's because it's just so much stuff that you need to catch up on. Um, these are a lot of things that I was never really aware of. So thank you for bringing these to light. Um, I never really understood prior to that. I always knew that China uh, had a relationship China. with China, had a relationship with with, um, with Pakistan now over India. But I never understood where the roots of that were, were really coming from. Mm-hmm. So thanks for bringing that context in there because I had no idea. Of course. Um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a it's definitely like one of those subjects that's just not really touched on before. And now we're dealing with like this uh, incredibly aggressive situation that have that has tons of geopolitical implications. For sure. Um, before we get into that, though, we need to talk about that guy's mustache. Oh wait, no, let's get to that in a second because we got to lead up to that guy's mustache. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. All right, so. Let's start it with like 2003. So in 2003, the the two countries, so India and Pakistan, decide uh, to do yet another ceasefire along that line of control. This is after like you know years and years of just like fighting each other all the time. Um, since then, uh, both sides have con- continued to like attack each other, specifically in Kashmir, and they keep blaming each other of violating the ceasefire. Uh, they're both guilty of it, um, frankly. And on uh, the 14th of February, so Valentine's Day this year. A uh, Pakistani-based terror group actually claimed responsibility for carrying out a suicide bombing in Kashmir, uh, and this was this is the reason why we're talking about it so much in the news and things like that today, because it killed 40 Indian police uh, or paramilitary police, and because of that bombing, there have been a number of airstrikes from both sides on each other, and we're talking about like like fighter jets dropping bombs and shit on each other. Like this isn't like. Like putting down a, a a small terror group. This isn't like you know a, a couple of shots ringing out in the streets here and there. These are like full on like they're fighting a war kind of. You know, like you don't involve airstrikes without calling it really a war. And this is where we get to the thing that I know you want to talk about. So notably, Pakistan shot down an Indian fighter jet and captured that Indian pilot who has the most ridiculous mustache I have ever seen. Uh, and they quickly released him a couple days later and they called it like a gesture of peace. But let's talk about this dude's mustache. Who the hell said that was a good idea? 
<laughs> like, like if you're listening right now, Google Indian pilot mustache, and you'll see what I mean. It's so ridiculous. It looks like it's basically Wario's mustache, right? <laughs> it's something like that. It's got that. like a combination of like, like, like handlebars, but like not really, and like you know, like those like that early 2000s chin strap going on kind of but not really i don't know it's weird (laughs) it's basically kind of like a chin strap but the beard go instead of it being across the chin it goes above the lip it goes north and and then over his mouth (laughs) north and over your over his mouth and but it's incredibly thick it's a thick it's a very thick burt burt reynolds mustache yep it goes down And it kind of looks like <laughs> wings coming out of his face, and it just—it's dynamic, like a, I bet, right? It, it looks like a power-up from a video game. Like it's straight up. It's an incredible mustache. Um, you need to be a fighter pilot to be able to rock that, because I am told they have in- incredible amount of confidence, which is a good thing. Well, I, I, guess. I bet that he's compensating for something, and he should totally get some blue chew, to be honest. So, Speaking of overcompensating, <laughs> uh, but that mustache is incredibly unique. <laughs> I mean, like, when I was doing research on this, like, I had seen this before, but I forgot about it, and I literally just stopped what I was doing just so I can watch videos of this dude, because his, his mustache is just... It's epic. It's 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 up there, man. I I hope that he one day runs for some you know government office in India just so I could see his silly mustache more. I hope this isn't the end of silly mustache fighter pilot man. Me neither. And all right, let's go over uh, enough of the mustache talk. <laughs> um, speaking of mustache, we're gonna get into another mustache later. We got some questions. But, oh yeah, um, big one. Yeah, yeah um, we're not. We didn't record that early. We heard about the John Bolton yeah, thing, so don't t- worry. We'll today. discuss yeah. this in a mm-hmm. second. Uh, however, god damn, what the hell's out there? All right, fuck it. All right, fuck it. Do it live. <laughs> We're doing it live. <laughs> it's only a couple more days of summer from when we can make sure that there's no town coming in. All right. So, um, like, what are the geopolitical implications of this? Because, like, why why is Kashmir, like, all right, so there's a history of it being disputed, but, like, who cares about it anyway? Is it just Mm -hmm. greediness over land? I mean, yeah, kind of, but, like, that's, like, a weak answer. I I actually have a a few friends who are, like, hip to the... um, hip to the topic and uh you know i just asked like what's up with uh, kashmir and and you know i think the general idea is that you know border expansion and just like you know nationalism and scooping up more land is like a, a big primary reason and i guess that's part of it for sure but it's totally not you know it's not the it's not the whole picture there's a lot of really interesting things that i learned about this and about why it's so important so border expansion yeah okay who doesn't want some more land right and kashmir is beautiful uh it is a nice region but to say that kashmir is that that india or pakistan wants kashmir because it's beautiful is like saying israel wants the golan heights because it's beautiful yeah they're both beautiful but that's not the only reason why they want it you know it's it's just it's not it's not the whole story now there's theological implications right so pakistan wants um pakistan wants kashmir because logically you know kashmir has a majority muslim uh, uh population and you know probably if you pulled if, if they were ever allowed to vote on it kashmiris would maybe side with pakistan but more likely they'd probably want to do their own thing like you know like the maharajas singh wanted to do initially um 
But it kind of makes sense to join some like-minded people and, and become a part of Pakistan. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. Like, I'm not trying to take a side. But, you know, just because of the uh, uh, theological makeup, because the, the religious makeup uh, of that population, it, it seems to make sense. And I can see why, you know, some Kashmiris would be uh, a little bit um, weary about joining India if, if that was the other option. Um, you know, Hindu nationalism is a real thing. You know, and uh, I could see how they would they would have some, you know, reservations about that. But honestly, that's not even it either. There are some there's some other implications there, and the first one I want to talk about uh, is very real. It's natural resources. So early on, natural resources were important for this. There was, you know, when they were in the lead up to getting the bomb for both sides of the country, there was some. Uh, rumors that there was a lot of uranium in the area, right? So the natural resources there and, and being able to control that was important. There's some oil uh, and there's some uh, uh, natural gas, things like that, that is there that they can use and they can harness and they can use to make money or weapons or both, right? And so that's where we start getting like, you know, you follow the money and that's really where we start getting the real reasons why they want it. So the natural resources part is there. An even bigger one is water control. So a little bit of uh, topography, some some geology, I guess. I don't know what the right word for this is. But most of the entire Indian subcontinent's water supply, all the rivers, are fed by glacial runoff from the Himalayas. And if you remember, I talked about the Siachen uh, Glacier, the one that's kind of like disputed by both countries that the UN couldn't decide who it belonged to. Well, this is the glacier that provides the majority of the water to the region. Right, so in the summer, glacier melts, water comes out of it. We get, you know, water in our rivers and stuff like that. So, water control is like very, very important, and this is especially important. Here comes the lib- here comes the left out of me when when we talk about global warming because we're seeing record record glacial melt, meaning it is melting much faster and much more furiously. That's what she said. <laughs> it's it's so much more wet. Um, but the, the point is that during the, the, the hot seasons, right, there's a lot of glacial melt and it's causing record flooding and it's wrecking crops and it's, it's destroying like uh, uh, um, re, uh, uh, like smaller villages and shit like that. Um, and in the in the colder seasons, in the dry season, we're seeing record drought. Right. So we're getting like polar opposites. Right. So. It's kind of important to be able to control that water supply so that they can manage their water output because, you know, nothing can live without water on this planet. Uh, and, and, and that region needs that water. You know what they say about water? It's wet? No, water is the, water, water is the essence of moisture. <laughs> and moisture is the essence of beauty. Zoolander for the win. <laughs> Zoolander for the win. I'll take Zoolander for 500 but yeah, so so water is important, right? Another reason why water is important is is hydroelectricity. It's actually pretty big in the region, and if you're able to dam up the watershed from this glacial melt, you're able to to create hydroelectricity, which means that you can offset things like oil, right? You don't need to buy or drill or consume oil in order to make electricity and that's super important for a burgeoning you know country like India or Pakistan for that matter right so control of that area means we can start building a shit ton of hydroelectric farms in the area 
which will produce a lot of electricity, which will produce jobs, which will help the economy. So there's this huge economic benefit for it, right? Part of that is that when you create hydroelectric dams, like the Hoover Dam, right, you redirect water sources. So there's also some geopolitical implications there because if Pakistan gets control of Kashmir, they can effectively reroute the water supply away from India and weaponize the water. They say, my water, my glacier, you got to deal with us if you want water. And we're not going to, we're not going to be nice. And the opposite would be absolutely true if India gets their hands on it too. Like no matter who gets it, somebody's going to do that. And I might add the Kashmiris, if Kashmir becomes its own thing and they control it, you better believe they're, they're going to create hydroelectricity to enrich themselves. And you better believe that they're going to use water as a way to deal with these giant nuclear nations that are around them. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So it's of massive geopolitical importance. And I'm glad you're bringing up the geopolitical importance because on this issue, most of the takes I see have to do with Hindu nationalism is be like, okay, it's just Hindu nationalism. It's a part of it, but that's like a, that's like a a soft, it's soft in my opinion. It's a soft argument. Well, here's my take on it is that, all right. So even if it, even if a conflict starts out as a sectarian conflict, it's never, it never is continued because of the sectarian differences. It's always over control over either land or natural resources or government jobs or, or whatever, but it's always control over something. So I think that's what you're really seeing here at the end of the day. Like, even though it's being presented as a, as a religious conflict, it's, it's more a fight over, over land and resources. That's right. The last one that I want to talk about, and this one's pretty important because China always has to come into the picture. So we've talked about this before. China is developing the Belt Road Initiative, right? And what this initiative is, is like, Silk Road 2.0, right? They want to make land roads to connect East and Central Asia as well as the Middle East and, and obviously onwards towards Europe so that they can make easier trade. It's it's actually really ineffective to ship shit. Right now in India or in Pakistan, if they want to export something, they have to go all the way the fuck around the giant peninsulas and they have to either go through, you know, like the the – the Red Sea, the Straits of Hormuz, or they go all the way around Africa to get to Europe. And that's expensive and it's annoying. And they also have to rely on like, you know, the geopolitical stability of the regions there, you know, uh, which we've all, all obviously extensively spoken about. Um, but if they're able to just truck their goods across the, you know, the Central Asian 
you know, subcontinent there, it's much more effective, it's cheaper, and there's a whole lot of ability to do that. Now, unfortunately for India and partly Pakistan, the Himalayan, <laughs> the Himalayas are there, right? It's literally like one of the largest mountain chains in the world. Everest is there, you know, um, it's, you can't drive a truck over Everest, uh, but Kashmir has a nice little land bridge to the rest of Central Asia and specifically a land bridge to China. And we already know China's doing a lot of business and they're doing this uh, um, Belt Road initiative and stuff like that. So control of Kashmir means control of the economic future of the region. Future. What's that? Nothing. I'm just being an idiot. <laughs> but that's super, super fucking important, right? Both sides recognize the geopolitical and strategic importance of Kashmir. And unfortunately, the people who get the shit under the stick are the Kashmiris. Nobody gives a shit about Kashmir. Nobody, no, like, I'm, I'm being facetious here. I care. But no one's going to try and grant them the right to vote on their own independence or the, the right to join the country of their choosing. They don't give a shit. They're going to fight a war over it or they're going to do whatever... They can to get their hands on it because it's important for those like five reasons that I just described a second ago. And that's kind of shitty. Yeah, it's shitty and it's a blackout. It's so I have a quite I want to open up the mailbag right now because we have some questions. Um, we have a good question that I think that can we can kind of segue off segue into this. Sure. So. Um, guys, uh, we we are doing a mailbag thing. We gotta we gotta come up with our own name for it. I don't. We have to come up. Yeah, we I, we stole the name from Gavin McGinnis. Uh, we need to change it. Sorry, Gavin. Uh, we haven't thought of another name, but I feel like as long as we're giving you credit <laughs> on the name, <laughs> yeah. then I feel like we're not doing anything that's like wrong, bad, yeah. wrong, or mm-hmm. immoral, or or shady. Uh, but yeah, mailbag for now. We'll change it in the future. Um, so. We got a question. Do you think India's takeover of Kashmir and its near blackout of media slash communications will embolden other countries in the region to embrace more aggressive foreign policies, given that most of the world didn't really show much outrage towards India? Miguel. Hmm. That's a tough question. Um, I want to flavor this a little bit by saying that the question's premise is kind of bent against India, which I don't think is totally unfair, but I think it's not the full picture. Um, so there's that. Um, there have been aggressive actions from both sides um, that anyone who's reading independent news can easily see. But as far as media blackouts and communications in India, I definitely think it's super troubling because... It does show, at least for the region, that media blackouts and communication blackouts can be an effective tool of silencing, um, you know, the right to assembly or protest or even just on the ground, you know, eyewitness accounts of, of atrocities that are going on. That is very concerning. Do I think it'll uh, embolden other countries to do the same? Uh, probably not, um, because I think that they already have that same idea. You know, any country that's like willing to to do media blackouts and shit like that, namely China, uh, Russia, for that matter, you know, they're already doing it. You know, this isn't anything new. I don't think it's going to c- 
cause like a new country to, to pick up the policy. Um, I just I just think people are gonna are gonna do it, and I don't like it, and I think it's very troubling. Well, here's the thing about India. So India is a is more powerful than the other countries in that region. So it's not like there's not like Mongolia can start pursuing that same type of policy. They don't have the manpower. They don't have the nuclear bombs. And also a really big point is that they don't have the foreign lobbies that India has as well. So uh, India is kind of like Israel in a lot of ways where they do have a powerful lobby. It's not an Indian lobby, but it's a Hindu lobby. So they have the ability to kind of pull tail in Washington and, and kind of get um, policy push in your favor. So what really matters in this world when it comes to kind of shoving your or kind of uh, swinging your dick around in, in, in foreign policy is your relationship with the United States of America because the United States of America is by far the most powerful country in the world right. militarily. we the biggest dick on the planet. So I think that other countries don't have the same advantages as India. Um, if China or Russia or other countries in a region were to pursue that same type of policy, it would be completely condemned. Uh, I think India is a special case because there is kind of a good relationship between the United States and India. Um, specifically, there's just a, there's many Indians who live in this country um, who contribute a lot to it. Um, most Indians who live in America, they, they work in high sector jobs in the medical field and the technology field. And, and the same um, could be said of Pakistanis, but and to, Pakistanis to a, as well, to, to a, a lesser extent, I agree that there's a lot more, uh, Indian immigrants in this country than there are, uh, Pakistani ones. Yeah. And also I think that there's kind of this notion, and this is just a theory of mine, but I think it definitely does hold merit. Um, there's... I'm going to come off a little bit like an SJW a bit, <laughs> so I hope you don't mind. Um, I'll humor you. But <laughs> you'll, you'll humor me, but I think there's massive prejudice against Muslims. Um, I think it, people look at India as kind of like a stalwart against Muslim people because Hindus and Muslims historically have not gotten along that well. So uh, – I think no. I don't think I don't think that India. I think India is an ad, has a an advantage of kind of pursuing its foreign policy goals without um, condemnation of the United States or or many other Western powers. Yeah, it's a good question, Miguel. Thanks for asking. All right. Um, all right. So second question. So this is going to tail way against um, India, uh, but into kind of a similar topic. So. Do you think that Israel will be forced to change its policy towards Palestinians due to demographic changes? Danny? Um, I mean, what do we mean by those demographic changes? We talk about, like, demographic changes in Israel? Yeah, within Israel. I think what he means is within Israel and within the growing population of the West Bank and Gaza because— the populations in those areas are, are growing massively. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you if if you are talking about um, the Israeli citizens who are not Jewish. So if you are, I have some insight into that. So um, in Israel right now, like the demographic changes and or, or the the high birth rates in the West Bank and Gaza aren't the only concerns for for the Israelis. Uh, or at least the, the Jewish population in Israel. So it's a lot of it has to do, there, there's other, there's other groups. 
So there is the um, there is the Israeli Palestinians or the Israeli Arabs, right? Who who have a very high birth rate and who are growing very fast. And um, there's also the Haredi population as well, which are like the Orthodox Jewish people in in Israel or just Orthodox Jewish people. And it's kind of a unique situation. It's because um, the Haredi, they're Orthodox. And up until a couple of years ago, they weren't really serving in the IDF. So the IDF is mandatory. It's mandatory conscription. With the exception of the Haredi. (laughs) But the Haredi, they kind of got their— They got a pass. They got a pass for it because they devout their life. They're like Amish people almost. Right. So they devout their life to studying the Torah. And lately, they've been forced to to actually join the IDF. And there's been these massive protests. And their population is actually growing really fast as well. So the Haredi and the, and the Native Arab populations are both growing really fast. And what's specific about the Haredi that makes them unique is that they... Um, they're not high earners historically. Like they're not, they're not. Uh, they they tend to be not as educated as the rest of Israel's population. Um, they tend to get married very young, and they have a very very high birth rate. Now I'm not on the ground in Israel, so I can't really give you like insight of like what of how the Haredi are being assimilated into the population. I've heard that they 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 are making changes to where there's a lot more Haredi who are joining the IDF and the guy, you know, the people who are younger are, are kind of realizing the social benefits of, of being a part not, of the system, <laughs> of being part of the system yeah. and not basing their entire life off like religious textures and scriptures. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think eventually, yes, I think definitely. I think demographic changes are going to change Israel's population. I don't know how long it will take. I think their biggest concern right now, the most acute concern they have, are, are the are the population growth within Israel, who are Israeli citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I don't think, I think eventually, if you combine all that together, um, specifically the Arabs, the Arab um, Israeli population, as well as the demographic, the, you know, the the populations in the West Bank and Gaza, Israel probably will have to change a lot of their policies, um, just because it's it's going to be right. But it, 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 it's it, just a question of like whether they'll change their policies towards Palestinians, right? So like you know, uh, Haredi's you know increasing their their numbers, their 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 population in in Israel might make changes that are related to the Haredi people and their interests. Um, so, you know, I, time will tell. I don't know. Well, Haredi, Haredi's are, they're like a very useful part of the voting block because right. they're typically, they typically are right-wing voters. Mm-hmm. So they are, they are represented by like the, the parties that are more right-wing than the Likud party. Right. Because the Likud party is like a centrist party. It's like a right-wing centrist party. Like there's more right-wing parties than the Likud party. They're kind of like the Republican party. Right. Um, so... Yeah, it really depends. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I can't. I can't give you more insight than that. Um, I think that is a common talking point that you hear about. Uh, you know how Israel will change a lot of its policy towards Arab populations and Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza will will eventually come through po- uh, demographic changes, and and that's also been kind of a reason. 
why it's been said that Israel has such harsh policy over people in, in the West Bank and Gaza is because they're scared of the the impending popul- demographic changes. Um, however, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, if I was on the ground, I would probably have more insight, but I'm not on the ground there, and, and I don't like see day-to-day life in, is it in Israel or, or, or any other place in the Middle East, for that yeah, matter. Yeah, so yeah. I wish I could answer that question a little bit better, but mm-hmm. um, that's all I know. That, that, you know that, that's, that's my point. Right. All right, next question. Um, what will be the global response of John Bolton being fired? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, Elizabeth. Okay, Elizabeth, thanks for asking a poignant question. Yes. Um, so we predicted. Well, yeah, I think we yeah, predicted we totally this. Did, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we talked about this in the podcast or just talked about this casually. But I feel like we've talked about this a number yeah, of times yeah. on this show. That John Bolton. John Bolton was on his way out, mm-hmm. and it's not really that surprising. Nope. So World War Three averted. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> the big. The big teller for me was. A couple of months ago, when Trump saw Kim Jong Un again, mm-hmm. and he met with him without John Bolton, while John Bolton was in some like meeting in Mongolia, it really seemed like he was on his way out. Right. Um. He he was take this. Yeah. No. Definitely. I he he put him in a corner. And was like, hey, hey, John. Uh, I want you to go to Mongolia or somewhere anywhere not North Korea while I go talk to North Korea. Yeah. It was it was clear. Like the writing was on the wall, but also, you know, uh, the how they were handling Iran uh, and uh, the big one was like how they're trying to pull out troops from Afghanistan, which obviously John Bolton wants to stay there until fucking, you know, forever, you know. Uh, so, you know, there there were those key uh, uh, things that they were that they were just disagreeing on. This this was bound to happen. Now, unfortunately, we're left with just Stephen Miller, which is <laughs> scary. But uh, I guess he's going to name a new person. But the question is around what's the global response to John Bolton being fired? And I can say with confidence right now, like today, price of oil dropped <laughs> by a lot. So that's one thing. That's that's a global response to John Bolton being fired. Um, I think that's pretty funny. Uh, oil is cheaper now. <laughs> um, but obviously, that is global economic um, implications there. So here's what I think is going to happen. Here, here's a positive things that I think will happen. So I think Iran and North Korea and even the Taliban will have a reason and a pretext to come back to the U.S. to talk. So John Bolton is kind is looked at as an instigator of war. Um, that's his reputation. So. I think that the Iranian leadership, specific, I'm talking about Iran because that I think that's the biggest kind of catastrophe that could actually happen in the world if, if the U.S. went to war with Iran, and or at least for U.S. foreign policy as of right now. The Ayatollah and the hardliners in charge, they can go to their population and, and say, hey, listen, um, John Bolton is gone. I think this is a good pretext to talk to, talk to the U.S. Uh, to see if we can get something maybe even a replacement for the JCPOA or, or, or whatever. Same going going for the Taliban, which a deal has, has kind of faltered and, and, and kind of died because of that suicide attack in Kabul the other day. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not sure exactly why that Afghanistan deal is actually butchered because they weren't talking about 
any of the Taliban offensive that were going on in the north of that country at the same time as they were negotiating that deal. It wasn't until that bombing in Kabul and that American so- that American soldier died is when they killed the deal. Um, I know I'm going off tangent right now. However, the Afghanistan thing is really weird because of how shady and, and kind of like the lack of context and information that's coming out there. So... Um, I can't really say if it's about Afghanistan or not, if that was the final pull of why Afghanistan, why uh, John Bolton was fired or not. However, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird situation. Overall, definitely a good thing. John Bolton is insane. Right. And he is, it's going to be great to get rid of all those other neocons that are with him, like his neocon posse. Right. Who would have thought that draining the swamp meant we had to hire some swamp people and then drain it? (laughs) Yeah. And, um, I don't know if it's fair to give I'm going to give Trump credit here, but like at the same time, he doesn't really deserve it because he brought him on in the first place. <laughs> it's like he brought him on in the first place. Yeah. And he he a lot of the things that I've agreed. All right, let's I'm going to point out this first. I would have fired John Bolton immediately after he went behind my back when I said I was going to pull out pull troops out of Syria in December, I, Trump said he's going to pull out. Of, he's going to pull troops out of Syria. Next thing you know, John Bolton travels to Tel Aviv with Benjamin Netanyahu, and he contradicts everything that Trump says. Yeah, that would. What been, the fuck is yeah, that? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> like, terms for for termination it, right there. It's not. It's not only just all right. If you agree with his foreign policy or what or or, or whatever, but he went behind his boss's back. Right, so like, insubordination. You, yeah. Insubordination. If you go behind, if your boss makes an announcement and you go behind his back and then you like get on television <laughs> and you just contradict what your boss says, or if you go into your office and you ha- on on like the loudspeaker or you send a big memo saying, fuck that guy, I don't pay attention to anything he says, your ass is going to get fired. He should have got fired right there. Like Senator Richard Black was on our show a couple of months ago, and he said that if I was president of the United States, John Bolton's, all of his stuff would have been on the White House lawn. <laughs> he said that, yeah. and it would have been filmed. I would, have, I would have timed it so it would have been filmed so it would be on national TV. And that's kind of wish how I wish he was fired. Um, I wish it was his stuff was just thrown out onto the White House lawn, just dumped in, <laughs> dumped in the White House lawn, and and uh, now, now just scatter, and he had to pick it up, and it was. <laughs> now just, really, John Bolton's going to be on fun employment for the next I don't know couple of months, for him, um, before he gets his next job. I I, I retweeted John Bolton. Uh, he John Bolton says that he resigned, even though Trump said he was fired, yeah. and he was definitely fired. Yeah, and. John and I retweeted it saying, change your, it's like, I said, change your Twitter. You're not national security advisor anymore. (laughs) Update your LinkedIn, bro. (laughs) Update your LinkedIn, man. All right. That was a a good one. I like like that story. Um, Are we going to do this this next one? This one's interesting. Um, Yeah, we're going to do this one. So uh, (laughs) – The title of this the title of this podcast is accurately named. Bro History is literally the worst podcast I've ever listened to. Your mindless jabber on topics you have no business talking about is in caps. No business talking about is almost impressive. I wish I had the confidence to speak publicly knowing that I'm going to make an idiot out of myself. 
You must be ignorant of how dumb you are. Dumb you are. Dumb you are. <laughs> <laughs> dumb you are, some caps. Um, I rather get political insight from the hobo. Hobo. Lives- hobo. H O B B O. He's spelled, he's spelled <laughs> the hobo. The hobo. <laughs> uh, he's trying to say hobo. Yeah, I know. Hobo that lives down the street from me. This podcast should be cast to the darkest corner of the internet, caps. Okay. So. Joke's on you, dude. We're already in the darkest corner of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> you found you us. Missed, you missed. You're searching the darkest corner of the internet if you found the show. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah. that hobo is going to be on the show next week. So there you go. And dude, like, that's your opinion, man. It's <laughs> oh, uh, cool. Whatever. <laughs> that's fine. I love this next question. Um. Who would win in a fight, a Mongolian horde or a Roman legion? Oh, shit. Roger. Oh, all right. Not that it, you know, like, Mongolian hordes have, have been pretty good at, like, defeating much larger, um, like, like armies than them. Like, small, they have just smaller numbers and they're still able to wreck shit. But can we set some, like, parameters on, like, exactly how many or, like, approximately how many of each side? I think you're going to, you have to take a standard Roman legion. I, so let's, I guess. let's look that up. I want to know how many people are in a Roman legion. How many people in a Roman legion? 5,000. Okay, 5,000 Romans. And then how many people in a Mongolian horde? Oh, fuck. Of course, there's not a clear answer on this one. All right, let's just take a, a, an even number, so, so or I've, no, you can't it, take it an even number. Around. Yeah, because all right, here's here's my take. So, let's just say comparable sizes to the army, because it's going to be impossible to find the actual number or comparable troop size. Let's say a thousand. Uh, let's say a thousand horseback Mongols and five thousand on foot Romans. I think I think that it largely depends on the where they're fighting, exactly. the terrain of where they're fighting. Yep. If they're out in the field, the Mongolians are going to fuck them up. Yeah, they're going to get destroyed if they're out in the field. So if they are fighting, all right. So a good a good reference for this would be when the Romans went out and fart, uh, fart, fart, and fart. <laughs> when the Romans went out the, and farted. <laughs> whenever they went out to like Persia and fought the Parthians, mm-hmm. who were like another indigenous like step, like a uh, horseback step fighting culture. Right. Um, they used to get their asses kicked. Right. Like, they used to get destroyed. They never went out where they never f- would fight uh, like these highly mobile um, like cavalry forces. They never really. They never really lasted. Um, now the Mongolians, they conquered a size that was bigger than the Roman territories. Right, much bigger. Much bigger. They slaughtered more people. And the empire itself didn't last as long. However, that was due to a lot of like political reasons internally about how people... It was a lot of internal political reasons. It's like succession, like who came next yeah. and shit like that. Um, I don't know. That's a tough question. I think that... I think the Mongolian, just straight up, straight battle. I think a Mongolian unit will would would destroy a Roman legion right. or a comparable Roman side. Right. If they were fighting outside of Italy or outside of like European terrain, definitely. 
Um, But if they're like in a city, probably that would neutralize a little bit of the effectiveness of cavalry. But generally speaking, I'm going with the, the Mongolians because of the cavalry. Yeah, I'm definitely going with the Mongolians and also just Rome's pat like Roman history of them not really having a good track record fighting against like the same type of units. Yeah, like horse of, people. Yeah. Of horse people. And the Mongolians were the greatest horse people of all time. Right. So I can only imagine that they would they would not last good. And the Mongolians they conquered everyone. Like there's right. not the only battles they really lost were the ones against the Japanese. And the reasons why they lost those battles is because of a typhoon. It, it <laughs> yeah, was exactly. like they came they <laughs> they when they they conquered everyone, they kept on going to Europe and they were conquering everyone in their path. They conquered China, they conquered Korea, these really high, big population centers, mm-hmm. they conquered the Middle East, which was a scientific uh, which at that time was a scientific capital or at least Baghdad was a scientific capital of the world. Uh, they butchered that city. They like there was nothing that stopped them. They didn't last against the Japanese because they they weren't good at swimming. They, had, they literally they literally had a typhoon yeah. that knocked out like a big percentage of their ships. Yeah, their horses couldn't swim. That was that was a problem. So I don't know. I don't know if they. I don't know if Rome could last against yeah, the Mongols. So yeah, it would have to be um, like like really outsized, like five thousand versus like a hundred. Mongolians, you know, May, like maybe Rome at their peak, and maybe if they're fighting in, like, let's just say if the Mongolians they came up through, if they were attacking Italy, because then they would have to go through the Alps, right? I mean, I think they'd be all right if they made it past the Alps. If they fought in the Alps, then it might be Han- a toss up. Hannibal, well, they're not going to fight in the Alps. Right. Like they're going to fight because, like, even Hannibal, when Hannibal got into Italy, right. During the, Pun- the Second Punic Wars, mm-hmm. he now we're now we're talking about Carth, right? Or um, yeah, they were tar- Carthage. Carthage. He was right. able to just give the Romans hell for about twenty years while he was in Italy. Like he was just in Italy, just conquering, uh, con- conquering armies, just taking cities. And basically, what Rome did is that they had to, they had to just like let him do that until he ran out of steam. Like that was like the strategy. It's like okay, like this guy's gonna kill. Like if we if we face him one on one in a battlefield, they're gonna destroy us. Like Hannibal is a better general than anyone we got, and they also have like a badass cavalry force as well. So they retreated into their cities and they just kind of let them starve until they could go out and they could match them. Like a funny story is that Cicero, I think it's uh, Cicero. I think I might be saying Cicero. 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 Yeah. No, Scipio, 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 the Roman general that eventually defeated Hannibal um, was like a he was like a teenager when he first fought him and his father had died in the battle of I want to say the battle of Kenef. Is that is that the big I think it was the battle of Kenef when like that that really famous battle when Roman went about. 90,000 Roman legions, allegedly, because you never know with ancient history, right, like what the actual numbers are. They just kind of numbers. It's like 100 people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, the story is that 90,000 Romans were slaughtered by a force of about 50,000. Th- let me just look this up real quick. Battle of Kenev. Oh, Kenev. Kenev. Battle of Kenev. So it was a battle where the numbers were very tilted in the Romans' favor and they lost it. And basically, like the famous story is Cannibal, he was able to out he was able to flank the Romans with the cal- with his cavalry mm-hmm. and they encircled the Roman legion. They completely circled them 
and it was a it was a force of anywhere between like I think it was like twenty thousand to fifty thousand, and the high numbers for the Roman Roman army was about ninety thousand or so. It was vastly outnumbered. They encircled them and spent an entire day slaughtering them. Like it was like in a day affair of them just going in butchering people for hours and hours and hours and hours. That's what the Game of Thrones battle, the bastards, was based off right, of. Right, right. You know that scene mm-hmm. where they were going in and Jon Snow's like, oh, my queen, hey. <laughs> it was, I guess it was before he yeah, became before a that. douchey bag. However, uh, I, I, I think... I think uh, yeah, we, we agree. Mongols. Mongo- Mongols. Mongols, I think, win that battle. Yep. Um, I like these questions. Yeah. <laughs> ask, ask any of those comparison questions. Like, I like yeah, those questions. That's, that's cool. Um, all right. Next question. I don't really, I don't think I can answer this question. Do you want me to, do you want me to yeah, read you it? Read it. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab. How do you think a post no deal Brexit will affect the UK's relations with its neighbors? And do you think it will increase the chance that the UK will cozy up to more countries that have a shady human rights record in a desperate attempt to secure trade deals? Okay, um, which countries are we talking about? Um, because this is probably the first time I'm hearing about the UK wanting to deal with shady countries in order to get around like trade deals that they can't do with Europe. In my opinion, a no-deal Brexit means that they're just going to get a shitty trade deal with Europe. They're going to still trade with Europe. They're still going to trade with the United States. More like they'll probably try and renegotiate trade deals with the United States to bolster that. Um, but they don't have like a ton of shit to offer us. So I don't really see their bargaining chips there. And it's super far away. Yeah. Um, it depends on what, what, what countries you really mean. Yeah. Shady human yeah, rights really records. like. Like what? What countries? Like you're talking about Saudi Arabia, right? Or maybe that's the first thing that pops up to my mind. Or, or, Saudi Iran? Arabia. <laughs> I don't know. I Iran, doubt it. Iran. No. I mean, I they probably should. De- they tr- they should trade with Iran. Boris Johnson. He turned down. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu was talking to Boris Johnson, and he asked him for compliance and putting on more sanctions on Iran. And Boris Johnson. As goofy as he is, he was like, oh, no, chopper. <laughs> oh, no, good chopper. We can't do it. Boris Johnson is the goofiest looking person in politics right now. Yeah, um, who would have thought? Like, I thought Trump was the goofiest <laughs> person and then Boris Johnson. Yeah. He is so goofy looking. His hair is is unbelievable. And you should set up like the, a coalition between him and like Indian mustache fighter pilot guy. Like, that would be great. Boris Johnson, like, there's so much negative press about his hair, but it's like he's the type of guy who has that hair straight up for publicity anyway. It's like part of it's his like look. It's like Bernie Sanders' hair, you know, like. <laughs> he, he has the hair. He has the hair in order to uh, look like a guy who just woke up and who's probably on heroin. <laughs> he looks like he's on heroin. Hey, mate, me and Keith used to be in these fucking, hey, you fucking cunt. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the like, Prime Minister of the UK. Yeah. Prime Minister uh, of the UK. But back to the question, though. Um, I think, honestly, no deal Brexit, they're still going to do the same trade that they were doing before. Just they're going to get a shitty deal out of it. That's all. And it's going to be bad yeah, for maybe. their economy for a while. That's that's. I don't think happen. that's going to. If countries want to trade with, like, all right. So here's a, the reality of the situation: is that countries typically don't care about a con- other countries' human rights records if they yeah. gonna, if they're going to get if they're going to make money off of it something strategic out of it right. if they're going to make money off of it they don't give a shit about human rights records like 
Do you think these countries... And it, why do you do think, think we're selling weapons to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, <laughs> why do you Trump think the U.S. Blatantly sells... blatantly said so. He's like, but they're going to buy like $500 billion of, of, of weapons. Who cares? Dude, do you know how many... It's $108 billion. Well, it's crazy. These Muslims are pissed off at these Muslims. You have to get a deal out of this. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. That's how he looks at the Middle East right now. Right. He literally sees like these two sides... In his mind, he's like, these people have been warring for centuries. They got to get, we- gotta give one side weapons. Or, bo- like, or both. Really- we'll just give them both weapons. We'll make lots of money. <laughs> no. This is how you capitalize on a deal. <laughs> if he could, he would. Yeah. If, it wasn't, if it wasn't for, like, the relationship with Israel, he probably would be like, yeah, we'll sell weapons to Iran and we'll sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. Hopefully, they need war. <laughs> Hopefully We're they- not going to put troops <laughs> in the ground. <laughs> Hopefully, they don't kill each other too fast because we need to sell them more money, more weapons. Who was the person who said that? Oh, God, I forget who it was. I want to say it was Donald Rumsfeld who said this, that when during the Iran and Iraq war, he said that, I'm pretty sure it was Donald Rumsfeld, when they were fighting each other, it's like, I wish both sides could lose. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sucks. Like I, yeah, it's like, if only both sides could lose. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, I mean, right. again, just to wrap up that question, uh, no deal Brexit um, definitely affects its relationship with its European neighbors, um, but they're still going to do trade with, with them. Like, realistically, they're still going to, they need things. And, you know, Britain does supply some stuff too. So they're going to still do trade. That trade, those deals aren't going to be as sweet as they used to be. And, you know, things like, you know, free travel between the countries will probably suck for a little while until they work it out. They'll eventually get some deal. It just probably won't be very good initially. And as far as them, like the UK, like they'll they'll be fine for the most part. They're not going to, they're not, <laughs> it's not like. Like suddenly they're they're addicted to heroin and they gotta like you know do some shady business deals and like suck dick for for some oil or some shit like that you know like it's not it's not gonna go down like that it's just gonna suck yeah, for them I, for a little while yeah I don't I don't think that they're gonna it's gonna incentivize them to do deals like what like what other shady country could they possibly do deals with um, that they're not Iran. already doing yeah like that they're not <laughs> already doing deals with the first place yeah um all right i think that's those are all the questions let's wrap this up we've been we've been at it for an hour and 40 minutes um all right so i guess housekeeping stuff subscribe to the podcast um rate and review the podcast if you enjoyed it yeah definitely do that so that we can get a dark corner that that one person was talking about the dark yeah we need to get (laughs) we got to get out of this dark corner of the internet where these sirens haunt us forever and ever (laughs) Um, buy Blue Chew, <laughs> get boners, yeah. and um, if you want the content early, extended, extended content early, um, go to our Patreon. That's another way you can support support us. Um, and then what else do we need to do? Oh yeah, um, cool thing that happened the other day. We got on a list for best geopolitical podcast. Woo. Feed spot. Uh, we've been uh, put on a list for best geo or top thirty best to be uh geo podcast geopolitical podcast which is pretty cool um i don't know how anyone could put us on a list for best geopolitical podcast but we'll take it and um yeah i think that's pretty much it cool man all right 
let's end the show. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Picture Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of Terminator 2 when he's going down inside the lava and his thumb goes up. Yep. That's that's the goodbye. That's us for, for now. That's up, us for now. All right. Peace until uh, next week. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.